0: And at this time, we will have the first of our two uh, readings this morning. Um, If you would like to read along, let's remain standing as we read the word of God. If you'd like to read along, we're going to be reading Matthew uh, chapter 17, verses 1 through 9, which you can find in the Black Pew Bibles on page 1045. Let's hear the word of the Lord. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one of the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. The word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You may be seated.
1: You may have recognized that this is Transfiguration Sunday. And so we have read uh, Matthew's text regarding the experience of Peter, James, and John on the mountain with Jesus. That experience is also in Mark's gospel in chapter 9 and Luke's gospel in chapter 9. And though John doesn't speak to it directly, uh, he in his prologue says, yeah, We beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only begotten, uh, full of grace and truth. So, so all of the gospel writers uh, point to the transfiguration Including it in in their writings as significant, the apostle Peter touches on it as well, but he does so in in the service of a larger uh, well in his case a, a somewhat more narrow purpose but but a larger purpose across the church and so i 'm going to read from Second Peter chapter 1 and verses 12 through 21. I want to just have you follow along in your Bibles. I'm going to read it from the New English Translation because there are a couple things in that translation, as you will notice if you follow in the Pew Bibles, that are somewhat different, just a bit different, but I think they illuminate the text in a way that I believe helps us to grasp it better. So follow along with me as we read together. Second Peter chapter 1 verses 12 through 21. Peter writes, Therefore, I intend to remind you constantly of these things, even though you know them and are well established in the truth that you now have. Indeed, as long as I am in this tabernacle, his body, I consider it right to stir you up by way of a reminder, since I know that my tabernacle will soon be removed because our Lord Jesus Christ revealed this to me. Indeed, I will also make every effort that... After my departure, you have a testimony of these things. For we did not follow cleverly concocted fables when we made known to you the power and return of our Lord Jesus Christ. No, we were eyewitnesses of his grandeur. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when that voice was conveyed to, conveyed to him by the majestic glory This is my dear Son, in whom I am delighted. When this voice was conveyed from heaven, We ourselves heard it, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Moreover, we possess the prophetic word as an altogether reliable thing. You do well if you pay attention to this as you would to a light shining in a murky place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you do well if you recognize this. No prophecy of Scripture ever comes about by the prophet's own imagination, for no prophecy was ever born of human impulse. Rather, men carried along by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Let's ask the Lord to bless our our reading and the preaching of his word this morning. Father, thank you that we can know you, that you reveal yourself to us. And by this word which we have heard, we are drawn closer to you, and given more insight into your purposes for your creation, for your people, and for our lives. And so I pray you would bring this word to our hearts and minds, that you would bring the words that I have to speak uh, to our hearts as well, Lord. Cloud over those things and blot them out that do not advance your purpose. And raise those things up that speak the truth and encourage us in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm not sure uh, how many of you were watching TV last Sunday night. Could could be more than just a few, I suspect. Um, while the Super Bowl didn't turn out like many of us would have preferred it to, to turn out, it's interesting because the Super Bowl is always the opportunity to watch commercials. And uh, this year there were a couple in particular that uh, got a lot more discussion as the week unfolded, and those were... Uh, from a campaign that's been around now for a number of years I think two or three at least in media and 10 in planning called he gets us anybody see he gets us know what I'm talking about it's a series of commercials that are trying to make Jesus more uh, I'll say approachable more acceptable or or available to the world beyond us and, and the theme of it is people in all kinds of circumstances all of life get he gets us. we are not strangers to God there's uh, AOC, our, our friendly New York legislator. Uh, AOC said that it was fascist. In fact, there was quite an article this week uh, about uh, Christians being fascist because of that approach uh, the comment that she made was something tells me Jesus would not spend millions of dollars on Super Bowl ads to make fascism look benign and uh, one author said what is it about love your enemies and be nice that is fascist the obvious answer is nothing so you can follow up that that controversy if you want but it led me in another direction and that is this It's great that Jesus gets us. No argument with that whatsoever. But the more fundamental and important question is, do we get Jesus? Great that he gets us. I'm pretty sure as our creator, he has no problem with that. You know, he's got us figured. But do we get Jesus? And one of the things that that led me to ask that question was a survey recently released by Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway Research. Their 2022 survey has gone back to 2014. They've done it every two years since 2014 on on the state of, you might say, theology, the state of theology. Now, Lifeway defined evangelicals as people who strongly agreed with the following four statements. I'm going to read them to you. The Bible is the highest authority for what I believe. It is very important for me personally to encourage non-Christians to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. Number three, Jesus Christ's death on the cross is the only sacrifice that could remove the penalty of my sin. And number four, only those who trust in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior receive God's free gift of eternal salvation. Now, those are the four statements— With which you being in agreement identify you as an evangelical. All right? Now, from the survey, here are some statements. Statement number four God learns and adapts to different circumstances. That is, God changes. 48% of evangelicals agreed with that statement, only 43% disagreed. Everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. Sixty-five percent of evangelicals agreed with that statement. Statement number three, God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Fifty-six percent of evangelicals agreed with that. Number seven, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Forty-three percent of evangelicals agreed with that statement. The Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. 26% of evangelicals were in agreement with that. And finally, this isn't the last question, but my last one, religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It is not about objective truth. 38% of evangelicals agree. Now, with all due consideration about limitations of surveys and wording, et cetera, et cetera, it seems to me that there is an issue with, never mind the world or never mind the church, with evangelicals alone. There is an issue with evangelicals alone and the truth of the gospel. Now, it may surprise you and it may not to recognize that that's not new to our day and age. The Apostle Peter in the writing of his letter, particularly 2 Peter, is concerned equally or even more so about the state of the church in his day. He is not writing this letter to the world about the world. He is writing this letter to the church about the church, and he is concerned with with false prophets and false teachers. As he goes into chapter 2, you can read that. He's quite a... a, um, Quite a criticism of those in, in chapter 2. Uh, they tell stories that they have made up, chapter 2, verse 3, to deceive people about what is true. They're, they're false disciples who have themselves gone astray and who are trying to entice unsteady souls, that's what Peter calls them, unsteady people, entice them to follow their path. So, to the church, about the church, and the false prophets, false teachers in the church. And Peter, Peter wants to be sure that, that his readers do get Jesus, that they know that the Christianity that they have received and believed and lived out and passed on is the case, that it is true. One commentator says this, Second Peter is a homily On Christian growth, set in the context of threats to Christian stability from a type of destructive and heretical teaching. In his letter, growth in grace is urged as indispensable, not to impress the world, but to rescue young believers from spiritual disaster. It is a homily on Christian growth. ...urged as indispensable. But our world, like the world of Peter's day... ...is is broken and it is breaking. It is fallen and it is falling. It is lost and it is wandering ever more deeply into darkness. It is not, as my wife continually reminds me... ...and I don't know where she attributes the comment... This world is not perfectible. It is only redeemable. Not perfectible, only redeemable. And thus, the truth is that we ourselves need not only to be redeemed, but, but we need to be equipped to be agents of redemption if we're going to be ministers of the gospel in this broken and fallen and lost world. So if we're to be faithful and fruitful in our calling to be Jesus' witnesses, to make disciples, we need, like Peter, to make every effort to ensure that the gospel that we proclaim and live is in accordance with the truth of God in all of its fullness and power. We need to be not only redeemed, but equipped to be agents of redemption. So, so to enable us to, to get Jesus in the context of this passage, to keep us from wandering from the truth, Peter, in verses 12 through 14, sets forth his purpose. Take a look at that with me. And again, I'm, I'm in the words of the um, New English Translation. Verses 12 through 14, Peter says, I intend to remind you constantly of these things even though you know them and are well established in the truth that you have. Indeed, as long as I'm in this tabernacle, I consider it right to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that my tabernacle will soon be removed, because our Lord Jesus Christ revealed this to me. Indeed, I will also make every effort that after my departure, you have a testimony of these things. So I'm going to suggest three things Three headings, you have them in your bulletin. And and just comment on the bulletin, I'm going to switch points two and points three around. Um, I came in last week, sat down for the service. I realized Wesley had stolen not only my call to worship but my first hymn, so I had to change those in the course of the week. Um, The first title I gave off to Gladdy wasn't working, so I had to change the title. And halfway through the week, I thought, you know... I need to change the insert, but it's already too late for that. So you're going to change the insert for me as we go along. We are going to talk about the things of God, which Peter talks about. We're going to talk about the testimony of God. And then finally, we're going to talk about the truth of God as we seek to be equipped to be agents of redemption. Now, we're going to do that by going back to the beginning of the chapter, to verse 1. Of, of Chapter One Peter's writing to those whom he says have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Now, one of the issues that Peter was facing was the um, assertion by some in the church that yes, yes, Peter and James and John and the other disciples that they are apostles. But they have this special insight. They have this special relationship with God that that you and I, normal church members, normal believers in Jesus, can't have. We, We have to have something else, something different, maybe even something better. And so Peter right away says, no, look, you have a faith that is equal to ours a faith of equal standing with ours then that greek word faith uh, it, it means this it means to believe to the extent of complete trust and reliance okay your faith is not a subjective kind of rabbit's foot that you wiggle in your pocket when when the going gets tough your faith is complete trust and reliance upon this Jesus Christ, upon his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his exaltation, his present rule, all of these things that are a part of what it means to believe in Jesus are complete trust and reliance. As well as you touched on last week in, in Peter's Defense or speech to the Sanhedrin When he's brought there in trial He is saying Exalted at the right hand of God God has made him both Lord and Christ This Jesus whom you crucified That is the faith As scripture says elsewhere Once for all delivered to the saints It is not a subjective matter at all It is the facts asserted about Jesus Christ and the meaning of those facts for the world for those who believe in him this faith has a specific objective distinct context content and peter says you've got the same one there's no there's no grades of belief when it comes to faith there's only the faith and unbelief in fact I was listening to a sermon by Tim Keller earlier this week. He says this, If you say that you believe in Jesus Christ, then believing in the superiority of Jesus, and all that that means, as the best and perfect way to God, is the inevitable, inexorable implication of believing in him at all. In other words, if you do not have this understanding of who Jesus is, if you don't get Jesus in this extent, you don't really believe in Jesus. You believe in some, something, someone less than Jesus. You believe in a Jesus who, who maybe wasn't raised from the dead. You, you believe in a Jesus who isn't the Son of God. You believe in a Jesus who hasn't ascended to the right hand of the Father. That, that's not Christian faith, no matter what you call it. No matter what kind of subjective comfort it gives you, it is not to believe in Jesus at all. And Peter says, To those who obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, you get Jesus, he's saying. And then he goes on to say, that faith is part of the things of God. The other thing he says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now again, this word knowledge um, appears again in the text in verses in verse 5 and 6. But the knowledge there is a different Greek word than the knowledge that we have in verses 2 and 3 and 8. And and the knowledge that we have here, the Greek word is gnosis, this word is epinosis, sort of, and above, a completed, a perfected knowledge. And it means the content of what is definitely known the content of what is definitely known. In other words, when when, when God gives us the gift of faith through through grace alone that, that makes us true believers, then this word epignosis, this this knowledge word here in verse two, is is almost a is one of the resource books, it is almost the technical definition for decisive knowledge of God implied in conversion to Christ. In other words, without this knowledge, in other words, there are not kindergartners and graduate students in the knowledge of God and of his salvation. You have a knowledge, a definite content, what is definitely known the knowledge of God, which says, as Jesus in John 17, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. There's not like, well, I know him a little bit, and well, I know him a l-. No, no, get away from that. It is not graded. Peter says, you have the same faith that we do. If that faith is of... Complete and trust reliance on the Lord Jesus Christ, the knowledge of God that that brings to you. That's a, you might say, that's a full kit. When I was in the Navy and we were in boot camp, went down the line and you got your skivvies, your undergarments, you got your uniform, you got your sweater, you got your overcoat. Everything that you needed by the time you got to the end of that barracks was in your sea bag. They used to joke in the Navy, you had at the time I was in, you had to ask permission of your commanding officer to be married. You couldn't just go ahead and do it. And the reply was always, you know, if the Navy wanted you to be married, they'd have put a wife in your sea bag. <laughs> in other words, everything you needed was in the bag. You needed nothing else to be a good sailor. Peter's saying the same thing here, that everything that you need... Is in that knowledge of God. It is right there. And his divine power, he goes on to say, is granted to us all the things that we need for life and godliness, verse 3. And and by his own glory and excellence, end of verse 3, he has given to us his very great and precious promises. Now, some of those promises are in Peter's uh, letter here. Uh, in verse 4 of chapter 3 we have the promise of his coming that's held out before believers in verse 13 of that same chapter we have the promise of a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells now these are the only two places in all of the new testament that this word promise appears and they are both here in second peter in in his letter to believers regarding the things that they have been given You have everything you need through your faith, just like our faith in Jesus Christ, His very great and precious promises. And so He says, then, through these promises, you're going to become partakers of the divine nature, you're going to be like Christ. John tells us in his gospel, does not yet appear what we shall be. Excuse me in his letter. Does not yet appear what we shall be, but this we know. When he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. That's part of the promise that we have. And Peter says these promises are yours through God's own glory and excellence. Now verse 5. For this very reason. What reason? The reason that you've been given everything you need. It's in your sea bag that bag called faith in Jesus, comes all of these promises. And because of them, make every effort. And again, I like the, um, the new English version. Make every effort to add to your faith excellence, and then to excellence, knowledge. There's that different knowledge word. That's a, you know, I'm in kindergarten now, and I need to get to be you know, in college, so I got to learn. That's that word, knowledge. To knowledge, same word again, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly affection, to brotherly affection. NET says unselfish love. The ESV says love, uh, just simply love. That is Agape. The Greek word is agape, and that means, you know, a love that doesn't expect anything in return. So you've got everything you need. Wonderful. Before you go out and boogie down, make every effort to add to that faith all of these things. Because he says, if these, and here's where I used the NET before. The ESV that you are looking at says, if these qualities are yours, which makes perfect sense there, but the same word will be translated differently in other places. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unproductive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And there's that word again. That's the knowledge word. Okay, I get Jesus. Awesome, great, wonderful. What are you doing about it? Make every effort to add these things to your faith to your knowledge and you won't be ineffective make every effort to do that and he says regarding those who don't and this is where the word qualities again comes in verse 9 whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted he's blind he's forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins this, this word forgotten means to, to not recall information when our oldest was young, and he was at that age where you and I might say, oh, I forgot what I was going to say, he would say, oh, I lost my mind. Now, that probably describes more of us as we get older. We tend to lose our minds a lot in that same fashion. But, but that's exactly what he's saying here. Look, if you've forgotten this, you've essentially lost your mind. You, you don't realize or remember the, the significance of what you had. So the the fact that you were cleansed from your sins is lost to you. What is the significance of that? Well, of course, it comes back to how can we be forgiven and cleansed and brought into relationship with God? Only through the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's the only way that it happens. And and if if you have, in light of that cross and the mercy and grace is extended to you, if you have failed to add to your, quote, faith, Knowledge and virtue and excellence and self-control and perseverance and brotherly kindness and love. If you haven't done those things, you didn't really get forgiveness at all. You didn't understand it. You've forgotten it. You don't know the significance or you've lost sight of the significance. And so Peter goes on to say, therefore, be all the more diligent. That's in verse 10 of your pew bible the new english translation says again make every effort to be sure of your calling and election for by doing this you will never stumble into sin and an entrance into the eternal kingdom will be provided make every effort to add these things make every effort to to be sure, if it's not like you check, go look up your baptism certificate. No, no. You, you make certain of your election and your calling. How? By being diligent, by making every effort to add to your faith the things that Peter points out. So, so these things, these things are part of what I call guardrails to the gospel. You won't run off the road if you keep these things in mind. The, the faith of equal standing, the knowledge of Jesus, the very great and precious promises, the, the exhortation to make every effort to add to your faith, the, the exhortation to make every effort to, to confirm or to be sure of, yes, this is the Jesus that I believe in. This is the Jesus that I worship. This is the Jesus that I proclaim. This is the Jesus whom I seek to model, to become like. Because that is my calling. That is why God has brought me to himself. And the result of that will be an entrance, a richly provided entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so Peter says, therefore, because of these things that you've been given, because of these things I've mentioned, I'm going to do this. I'm going to remind you, best I can, and in verse 13... And I will also make every effort. Okay? You make every effort to do this, and you make every effort to do that. And I will make every effort to see that after I'm gone, you'll have a testimony of these things. That's the second guardrail of the gospel is, is the testimony. I'm going to say the testimony of God. In this case, it's not God's testimony of himself. It's Peter's testimony about God. The the Greek genitive works both ways. There's a possessive, and there's I'll call it an alliterative. This is a testimony about God that Peter is going to make every effort to be sure that his readers understand. He's going to be gone. My departure is right in front of me. It won't be long now. Jesus has told me that I'll be out of here. And when he goes, remember he's one of the apostles. He was. There at Jesus' trial and crucifixion, he was part of those who saw him alive, who ate fish, etc. He is one of the 12. And when he's gone, it's kind of like when one of your parents passes or maybe the last parent passes. It's just you and eternity now. There, there's nobody between you. That, it's kind of an empty feeling. And it doesn't matter at what age you lose a parent. It's like, hmm, I never had to take on the world unmediated before. Mom and dad were always there. Well, Peter's saying the same thing. Look, you're going to have to take on the world that's out there because I'm not going to be here. But I'm going to make every effort, just like you're making every effort, to be sure that you have a testimony. So I'm going to remind you constantly of these things. You already know them, and, and you're well-established in them. And that, that well-established is, again, it's a wonderful Greek word, and it means become stronger stronger. In the sense of more firm and unchanging in attitude or belief. More strong, in the sense of more firm and unchanging in attitude or belief. That's that's what I want for you, my readers, says Peter. I I want you to have my testimony, the testimony of, of my life, the testimony of my experience, the testimony of my word so that, that you can be kept on, if you will, the straight and narrow, that you won't wander off, that you won't be led astray by these false teachers, that your, that your profession of faith will not be proved to be empty because you, you forget what it was that you were saved from. And so Peter says, what we made known to you, okay, in verse 16, What we made known to you wasn't a fable, it wasn't fiction, it was fact. What what we saw on the mountain and heard on the mountain is an eyewitness account. We were there. In fact, he uses that word. We were eyewitnesses. And when this voice was conveyed, verse 18, we ourselves heard it for we were with them. All right, I'm telling you, I was there, I saw it, I know it, I'm making every effort to be sure that you can live out your Christian life into an uncertain future on the basis of what you have learned and heard and received in me, as Paul says. So we we need to know, we need to be convinced of the truth that's in Jesus Christ if we are to be his witnesses. And this is what Peter is saying. We were witnesses, we saw it, we heard it, we were there when it happened. I'm telling you, it's not made up, it's not like the fables these false teachers are peddling. This is God's honest truth, if you will. So now, you you need to understand more about that truth. And this is where I, I am at some odds, although there is an honest difference in opinion over how this section here verse 19 and following is to be understood the ESV that you have says and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed the new English translation says moreover we possess the prophetic word as an altogether reliable thing and I want to argue for that second understanding just briefly with you if, if I will Peter is not saying, you know, we we had our Old Testament. We had our Old Testament, and we weren't quite sure about it, but then we had this wonderful experience with Jesus on the mountain, and now, oh, now I can believe it. That's not what he's saying. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying, look, when, when Jesus revealed himself on the mountain, we made known to you, verse 16, we made known to you the power and return. Now, we didn't read in Matthew... About return. We just we just this is my beloved son in whom I'm delighted. Listen to him. But 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 Peter clearly understands and, and Peter's experience as an eyewitness was that when Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus, they were talking about, Luke uses the word, his exodus. And, and and many most scholars say, well that was his leaving, you know, at the cross and going to the right hand of the Father. Yes, yes. That's the exodus. Absolutely. But But the exodus in the life of the Jewish people was when the temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. They were in a second exile, now into Babylon, and they returned to the temple. And Jesus is speaking of his exodus as going to the Father to be at his right hand until that day when he will return. You... Need to pay attention to this, says Peter, as you would to a light shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. That's that's kind of a technical term, the day dawning and the morning star rising for the day of judgment when God will return. He will come back at that point. And so Peter says to them Look, we possess the prophetic word given that says these things. And when John and James and I were on the mountain and heard Jesus talking about his return, that's exactly what the scriptures had told us before. And there are allusions on, on Transfiguration Sunday in, in liturgical churches. You would also be reading Psalm 2 today, which speaks of the Lord scoffing at the rebellion of the nations because his son will return and rule with a rod of iron and crush all opposition. And that's a text that's also read on Transfiguration Sunday. But, but Peter is alluding to that by the way he speaks here. There will be a day of judgment when God comes back to rule And to crush all opposition. And that's part of his Exodus. And so we have that prophetic word that says those things. Believe it. You don't need to have a mountaintop experience to have confidence in the word of God. It is written that you may grasp it. He says, verse 19, You do well if you pay attention to this as you would to a light in a dark place. Now, any of you who've ever gone in a cavern or a cave, especially if you've taken a tour, there comes a point at which they turn out the lights. I mean, you've got to have that. It's not worth your admission if you don't get that thrill. It doesn't matter how close that hand goes to your face. You cannot see it. It's dark. It's dark. And in the same way, when they turn the lights back on and you can see, you're enormously relieved. <sighs> yeah. Peter says, you need to do that with the Word of God. You're in the dark. You can't see a thing. How do you see a light? It's the Word of God. Thy Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, says the Psalms. Yes, you pay attention to that. You do well to pay attention to that, like a light in a cave. In a darkened world that has gone astray, that is broken and breaking, that is Fallen and falling, you need to keep your eye on the scripture. Why? Because we have the prophetic word as an altogether reliable thing. It, 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 it wasn't in question until the Mount of Transfiguration, and now we can believe it. It was never in question, it was the word of God. I remember as a, as a new believer, you know, being, being at conferences or, or at Bible studies, even. Where guys would say, look, I'm a Christian because there's an empty tomb. And if someone were to show me a tomb today with the body of Jesus in it, I wouldn't be a Christian anymore. I'm like, hmm, let me get this straight. In other words, your faith is conditional upon archaeological grave digging. And until you're assured that every grave that ever was, ever could be, or ever had been in Jerusalem and all of its environs has been dug open and Jesus isn't in any of them, your face is like, hmm, I hope it's true. I hope it's true. And when they open that last grave and Jesus isn't there, whew, what a relief. He's not buried. Is that the gospel? Jesus died and they never found his grave, so be happy? No. The gospel is Jesus died and was buried and raised again, and we've seen him. There is no unopened grave that can possibly contain the body of Jesus in light of the testimony of the Scriptures. It doesn't exist. So So to, if you will, hold some reserve to your faith, just in case, you know, you have to hedge against doubt, it's not Christian faith. It's something else that may use the name Jesus, but it's not a belief in Jesus as the risen, resurrected Savior. And we need to be clear about that. If we were to talk to a world that lives in this darkness, what kind of light is it? Well, I'm here with you, but at least misery loves company. That doesn't make it. That's not going to get you out of the dark. Peter says, you need to pay attention to this. Now, above all, you do well. In other words, I I dropped my voice a little. You do well to pay attention, and above all, you do well if... There's like a little conditional on that first do well. If you recognize that no prophecy of Scripture ever comes about by the prophet's own imagination. Now here again, I differ a little with with the ESV reading. It says with the prophet's interpretation. But you see, if you're going to interpret something, the something has to be there to interpret, right? Hmm, what's this page say? I don't know. Let me read it. I'll figure it out. No, no. Peter's point is there's no page to read, interpret, or anything until God speaks that word into existence. And he does that not by the prophet's own imagination or the prophet like, hmm, Isaiah gets up. like ah, That's early in the morning. I think I'll we'll write a couple hours of Scripture here before I go have lunch. That's not how Scripture is done. He says, no prophecy ever born of human will or impulse Rather, men carried along by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. You'd do well, moreover, if you recognize that. Because now you are out in a dark world and you need a light. And that light you have in the Word of God, which illuminates the path before you. Why? Because God spoke that word into existence. Our Sunday school class this morning was R.C. Sproul talking about Genesis 1.1. There was nothing, and then there was something because God said. Interesting enough, God said what? God said, let there be light, and there was light, and the darkness was erased. Where the light is, there's no darkness. And Peter's saying the same thing here. Look, if you want to stay on the path of the gospel, if you you want a guardrail to keep your journey from from wandering off, then then this word given by the Holy Spirit from God through the agency of men is your only guide. And you do well to, to recognize that. You see, recognize this, this word that you have didn't come from some man thinking, I feel particularly spiritual today. I write something about God. There's lots of that out there. And the false prophets and the false teachers are bringing it by the bucket full in order to deceive people and to lead them astray. You see, we have to point to, it's not our experience. The gospel is not our experience. The gospel is a truth, that, that content box, your, your sea bag of faith, if you will. It's got everything in it that you need. You, you don't have to have an experience to have the truth of God in your life. And, and therefore, the only way we can point to Jesus when we are witnessing is to get him to get who he is, to have the truth about him straight so that, that we don't run off the road, that we're not led astray, and that we can be lights because we bring the word of God, the gospel, to others. Jesus said, you'll be my ambassadors you know, to the ends of the earth. You will be my witnesses. I want to conclude just by reading another a paragraph from uh, the commentary that I've looked at. He says this, The letter of 2 Peter has special application to Christians living at the end of the 20th century when the reigning orthodoxies of secularism are crumbling. Listen to that again. The reigning orthodoxies of secularism are crumbling. Why? In rejecting transcendence, a thoroughgoing materialism, a thoroughgoing materialism forces people to seek happiness solely in this world. It is now clear that in making sense of life and human hopes, this is not working out. All you got to do is look at the paper. Maybe look in your own heart. I don't know where you are this morning. But, but you look in there, and if all that's in there is the stuff of the world, human hopes and life are not going to work out but he says for those who seek to make their calling and election sure there is at life's end an abundant entrance awaiting them into the eternal kingdom of Christ if in second peter there is an almost unimaginable severity for the apostate and the false prophet for those who have run off the road who have jumped the rails of the gospel if for them there's a severity there is also a vista beyond our dreams of unbounded joys for those who never forgetful of what has been done for them. Daily seek to increase more and more in the grace and knowledge of God. The world's not working. And instead of us sitting back and in our little comfortable Christian huddles, pointing that out to one another's satisfaction, we need to be in that world with a light in the darkness, talking about the faith that we have been given and the life that we are striving to live in the light of that gospel. And the world will be changed as it was in Peter's day. As he spoke into that need, let us speak into the needs of our day. Let's pray. Oh, Father, this is a heavy thing this day. And we are challenged mightily by your word. Challenged both to hear and to do. To make every effort to see our lives reflect your goodness and your holiness. To make our lives reflect the recognition of our need of the cross and the great gift of grace that has come to us. And I pray, Lord, that as we leave this place and go into our lives, that we would make every effort to add to our faith the things necessary to bring light to the world and to joy to the hearts of those who, like us, are kept on the gospel road. Through your grace and by the word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.